Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. I am so glad you're joining me. I'm recording this in the evening, which is unusual for me. Um, I recorded the whole episode this morning, uh, but it turns out in the Podbean app, there is a little window that if you close, then everything you record is gone, just gone. Um, there's no, are you sure you want to close <laughs> dialogue, it's just gone. So um, I closed it, it was gone, and I'll tell you, I was glad, because I was very unhappy with um, what I had put together for you. I have uh, finally decided to wade in and talk about the topic of mites. This is that horrible topic among um, beekeeping circles that there's so much division and polarization, but I keep having wonderful listeners, particularly beginners, ask on the Facebook page, how do I manage mites in a chemical-free apiary that's been chemical-free since 2010? And I want so much to talk about that. I want more people to be able to keep bees chemical-free if that's what you want to do. Um, but it is not an easy topic. As uh, all of you know, um, it's a topic that if you bring it up, whether on a discussion list or whether at your bee club, you could get grief from either side of the spectrum. If you um, say that you want to explore keeping bees without chemicals, then you're going to get grief from people who will tell you um, it absolutely cannot be done. And I will tell you that the best answer you can possibly have is, hey, I've been doing it for nearly 10 years now, and it's going pretty well. And if you can get there, you will not worry about answering those people. <laughs> and so I very much want you to have live bees. Um, at the same time, I will tell you, it is not easy. Um, I it is, it's, it is so much more than at least for me, putting bees in a box and walking away. As you know, the other side of the discussion is the kind of really hard treatment-free beekeepers. And with that, in some of the treatment-free beekeeping circles, then they consider a treatment even feeding the bees if they're starving or splitting the bees or anything. Anything's considered a treatment. And I just want to be clear that whenever I am using the words treatment-free in regards to my apiary, I try to use chemical-free just to be clear. If I slip up and say treatment-free, what I mean is I don't, what I mean by treatment-free is not putting chemicals into the hives for some type of miticide purpose, or actually for any purpose, but definitely to get rid of mites. For me, it doesn't make sense to call things that are just routine care a treatment. So if I take an antibiotic, I consider that a medical treatment, but I don't call feeding myself and watering myself and brushing my teeth treatments. What I have tried to do in my apiary is remain fully chemical free. So I wanted to talk to you about that experience and what has worked in my apiary and what has not worked. And I did the whole recording this morning I was just kind of all over the place trying to trying to capture what I put into practice and at the same time to be very clear on what you have to be careful with because I have some special circumstances including a rural setting where I don't have a lot of other beekeepers right up on my uh, yard and so so that anyway it was a big mess um, but what I did one of the things I had wanted to share with you 
is the work of Dr. Megan Milbreth, and I am just a super fan of her work. Um, and I found an article of hers, and what I realized once I erased that um, other podcast is that, you know, this article really says it better uh, than I feel like I could say it. Um, and so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read you her article, and I'm going to stop at points and just tell you, uh, she shares her experience, and I'm going to stop and tell you um, experiences from my apiary, and then go back into her article. And I hope this will be interesting to you, and I hope it can be a way um, to think about this whole uh issue. There's no way to get away from it. I mean, the varroa mites are in pretty much every yard in the United States. really varies um, how much varroa pressure you have. It, you know, totally depends on how many other beekeepers you have and just the the type of terrain and where your bees are and where they came from, all that. Um, So it's very individual. And it it almost doesn't even make sense. You know, if I tell you, oh, I do this, um, and so you too can do this. Well, I don't know if you can do this because, you know, I'm talking to people that are keeping bees in all kinds of different places and climates and scenarios from rural to urban. And all those changes, all those differences are going to impact what you can do and how hard it is and whether it is impossible or not impossible or easy or, or what. So... I want to uh, start this. Um, Megan Milbreth is, she is actually a doctor of public health, of human public health, and with an interest in epidemiology. And this is something I really relate, because I'm an RN, and I have an interest in epidemiology, and it's strange how these things turn out to really be applicable to beekeeping. And I'm noticing there's a lot of medical people uh, doing a lot of uh, research and work into trying to breed for more disease resistant bees and um, so she is out of uh, Michigan State University Extension and she's a second generation beekeeper and comes at this from a viewpoint to me that is so balanced and so realistic and at the same time very science based I just love her work and I think she is is such a nice um, break from the polarization and um, I just I'm going to start reading her article and then I will stop and tell you that it's me talking and tell you about my experiences in my yard this is Megan Milbreth Dr. Megan Milbreth the article is your bees don't have to die how can we become treatment free without killing our colonies I've got the link to this article um, in the show notes Keeping bees with my dad was fun when I was a kid in northern Wisconsin. It was the golden era of beekeeping. It was easy, all the bees lived, and I hadn't even heard about the Bavaroa mite. Fifteen years later, while in school in Michigan, beekeeping didn't seem as fun or as easy. Every conversation I had with beekeepers centered on figuring out why their bees were dying. Beekeepers were sick of losing bees and sick of treating for Varroa. They wanted treatment-free, strong northern bees. So I started rearing queens with the goal of raising these strong northern bees that could survive, that could thrive without treatment. I'd been collecting swarms for years, getting the best queens from local beekeepers and trying out fancy stock like Canadian Buckfast and Minnesota Hygienic. I'd been reading up online and I wanted to find the best bees that could survive Varroa. 
At that time, there was a lot of support for the live and let die method, where you let your bees go with no care, and whichever ones survive naturally, quote, are your new better stock. I had some colonies that I thought had a lot of potential, so I let them go, hoping to find out which hives held my new, hardy, treatment-free bees. The outcomes that spring was horrible, and really made me rethink why and how I want to keep bees. In this article, I'm going to explain why live and let die system doesn't work for my beekeeping, and probably yours too, and give you a new method that can help you find your best bees while keeping you happy and your bees healthy. Issues with the quote, live and let die treatment-free beekeeping. One, my animals suffered. Two, I put the bees around me at risk. Three, it was really expensive. Four, it made me miss good genetics. It didn't work for getting better bees. One, suffering bees. My treatment-free colonies looked great all year, but when I opened the hives for a late final inspection before winter, I felt sick to my stomach by what I saw. Spotty brood, melted larva, and small demoralized looking bees. Colonies deep in the throes of parasitic mite syndrome. My thriving, booming colonies had been reduced to small clusters, working desperately to raise the few larvae that were left after the viruses had devastated most of the young. Full supers of honey for winter looked ridiculous now, sitting optimistically on top of colonies that were mere shells of what had gathered that nectar all summer. It didn't take a diagnostic expert to know that my bees were profoundly sick and didn't have a chance that winter. My husband and I have raised all sorts of animals on our little farm. Pigs, chickens, rabbits, cattle, sheep, goats, ducks, dogs, horses, you name it. We have the same philosophy for all our animals. If it is under our care, we will keep it in good health. Every animal gets good food, clean bedding, and the attention they need. We would never let a sick ewe suffer and slowly die or let a pig walk around with a devastating injury. I care for my bees and it didn't make any sense to me to let them suffer and die slowly. This is especially true now that I know that is unnecessary as you will read at the end of this article. We know that colonies with high levels of varroa have all sorts of viruses, poor nutrition, and very little chance at living through any sort of winter, let alone having the energy to raise brood in the spring. Part of the problem is that most beekeepers who lose bees to varroa-associated viruses never see it happen. They wrap up their big booming colony in the fall, and then they clean up the dead out in the spring. It literally happens inside a dark box, and beekeepers can skip the sad suffering part. If you are thinking about not managing varroa mites in your colonies as a way to keep bees, I urge you to open the colony while they are in the dying process. Look at those suffering girls right in their compound eyes and reflect on how you want to provide for the animals under your care. It just doesn't feel right to call yourself a beekeeper while letting your bees die a slow, preventable death. 2. Save the bees? Question mark. Like a lot of beekeepers, I take pride in knowing I am providing pollination services to gardens and plants, and I like to think that I am doing some good by keeping bees. When I had sick colonies, however, I realized that my beekeeping was probably doing more harm than good to my environment. I was putting the pollinators around me at risk. When a colony is sick, like my bees with mites and viruses, it becomes weak. Weak colonies get robbed by 
bees from all the nearby colonies. We also know that bees are more likely to leave or abscond from a dying colony. Ever had a colony up and leave in the fall? Think about it if you've had varroa populations under control in those hives. Through drifting and robbing, sick colonies can add as act as disease reservoirs and with your bees spreading disease throughout your area. Honeybee colonies that are everywhere nowadays or I should say honeybee colonies are everywhere nowadays and it is impossible to know every hive hidden in a backyard or a wild colony that was living happily in a tree until you came along and threatened them with your sick bees. Even worse, it isn't just honeybees that are at risk. We even see deformed wing virus spreading to bumblebees and to some of our other native bees. Our native pollinators are already facing huge problems with habitat loss and pesticide exposure, and I don't want to be the one with the Save the Bees bumper sticker that is quietly infecting my native pollinator population with new disease. I'd really like my effort on the environment around me to be positive. I don't want my role to be the person that maintains disease and infection and makes it worse for nearby bees and beekeepers by perpetuating an epidemic in my area. 3. A bass boat would have been cheaper. Even if you have an icy shriveled little prune heart and it doesn't bother you to let your bees die or put the bees around you at risk, it shouldn't take long to figure out that the economics just don't work. Of the 24 treatment-free colonies I put into winter, about six made it through alive. This result isn't unusual for treatment-free beekeeping, and many people I talk to lose 50% to 100% of their colonies every year. Others using the live-and-let-die method record losses of 95%. If I had kept my losses to my normal 15%, I would have come out with wi of winter with about 20 hives of the original 24. I usually split my colonies in the spring and make an average of 75 pounds of honey from each split. From my six hives, that would be 900 pounds of honey. From 20 overwintered hives, I could expect 3,000 pounds. My little experiment literally cost me one ton of honey. Let's say I don't care about the honey, but I was interested in bees. I can usually make three nukes for every overwintered hive. Now I have just lost over 40 nukes I could have made available to beekeepers in my area looking for local bees at a price of 150 per nuke. I could have made a lot of money that I could have donated to bee research or I could have gotten a new fishing boat. We try to practice sustainable farming and there is nothing sustainable about losses that high. 4. What kind of bees am I left with? The reason we let our bees die without treatment is to find bees that can survive Varroa. We think that it will work like textbook natural selection. We put in a pressure, the weak die, and the strong survive. Unfortunately, it is much more complex than that with bees, and this process may not lead us to that end that we want and may not actually improve our bees. There are a few reasons why. Most of us don't live in isolated environments. Either we or someone else are bringing in new genetics. If I replace my losses with bees from outside my apiary, packages, or nukes, I am completely negating the bottlenecked effect of the, of the losses the year before, and I am replacing the susceptible population. If I make splits and raise queen from my survivor stock, but I don't have an isolated mating yard, then those daughters are going to breed with whatever is out there, and I will have no idea if these new combinations can survive Varroa. I'll have let them die again to find out, getting me into a perpetual cycle of bee death. 
you aren't controlling how your bees manage Varroa. Maybe your colony didn't have problems with Varroa because it swarmed four times, so it constantly broke the brood cycle. This is one way to keep Varroa populations from getting high. But now your neighbors have to pay thousands to get the colonies out from behind their siding, and your township is putting in an anti-beekeeping regulation. You want bees that manage Varroa in a way that is good for your future beekeeping, not just staying alive by any means possible. If you only select for a single trait, you, use a lot, you lose a lot of other good things. Let's say you live in an isolated forest and you don't bring any genetic, new genetics to your area and you breed only off of your survivors and control their mating. There is the chance that you can get bees that are highly hygienic and can handle Varroa. But what if they're jerks and are so highly defensive that you can't work with them or are susceptible to chalk brood? It is really hard to breed other good traits back in once they are lost. You can kill colonies that you actually want by putting them under too much pressure. Natural selection results in a balance between parasites and their host. If a parasite is so bad that it kills all the hosts, then the parasite dies too. In a parasite host balance, the parasites don't kill as much and the hosts are able to tolerate some level of parasitism. In the long view, we are looking for bees that can live at this balance. We may have some great bees in our yard that can live with some Varroa and would thrive once we reach a balance with this pest. We would lose those hives, though, if we let 12 hives crash around them. The disease pressure may be too high for them to handle, and we would lose the very bees that we want to keep. I don't live in a completely isolated area, and since I use splits as a main, as a main part of my management, I'm constantly creating new genetic combinations, colonies that are going to have different behaviors and different abilities to handle disease. I also wanted to sell queens to beekeepers and to have high-quality queens for myself, so I knew I needed to have gentle, productive colonies as well. Just leaving the bees alone wouldn't likely give me the strong northern stock that I was working for. So now I feel bad for letting my bees die and for putting other bees at risk. I'm broke and I still don't have the bees I want. But I still want to find good bees and I don't want to just put chemicals in my hives all the time. What's a beekeeper to do? After that spring, I reevaluated my goals as a beekeeper. I still didn't want to be on a cycle of treating all the time, and I still wanted to be working toward better bees. However, I also needed a way that my bees stayed healthy. I thought about why we navigate toward having unmanaged colonies in the first place because it allows us to find out which bees can handle Varroa and other diseases without treatment. What if we had a way of finding those bees without letting the rest of them die? Well, we do have that way, and I've been using it the last years, and I've been able to find colonies that don't need treatment, keep my losses down, and work toward having better of bees, all while taking good care of my girls. Here is my new system for identifying treatment-free colonies while keeping healthy bees. You will need the following. Some honeybee colonies, a good system for taking notes, a method for monitoring for mites, a source of good queens. Briefly, you will identify 
those colonies that aren't doing a good job of managing varroa mites and other diseases, you will first get them back to health, then requeen from a better colony. The big thing to remember is that the properties of the colony are a product of the genetics, and the genetics of the colony are dependent on the queen. If you don't like a colony, a colony you don't have to kill a bunch of innocent workers. You need to switch the genetics, i.e. just replace the queen. There is never a need to let a colony crash and die. 1. Start with some honeybees. 2. Start monitoring for Varroa using a sugar roll or alcohol wash. And she has a link for the instructions. And the link to this whole article, remember, is in the show notes. Monitor each colony at least once a month. It doesn't take long after you get the hang of it. You will soon find what colonies are keeping their Varroa population stable and what colonies cannot control Varroa on their own. 3. Take good notes. Make sure you record swarms and supersedures and any activities that you do, like splits or drone brood removal. This will give you more information on why mite counts are low. Think about what characteristics are important to you. Varroa, gentleness, honey production, etc. And find a way to record that for each colony. For example, use a 1 to 5 gentleness scale and record what they act like each time you enter the colony. Write down how much honey you take off of each colony, how they act on the frames, or if you just don't like the cut of their jib. <laughs> I don't know that expression, the cut of their jib. If you just care about survival, then just keep a column for Varroa counts. 4. Once you find a colony that has a disease, including high mites, treat that colony and then requeen with a good queen. For a summary of naturally derived treatment options for Varroa, see this link. And I've got that in the show notes. And this is, she has a link to her presentation, Managing the Varroa Mite. And it is a wonderful, absolutely full-spectrum overview of every option there is um, from uh, fully chemical-free to fully chemical on managing. Five, keep watching your colonies to make sure that Varroa stays low and you don't see disease. Make sure you have notes that indicates which colonies needed treatment and which stayed healthy. Those are the ones you want to make queens from. Monitor. Treat bees if there's a problem. Requeen the colony with queens from your best hives that don't need treatment. All of your bees stay healthy and you don't lose colonies to preventable illness. Now she gives a case study of kind of how this would look. She gives an example of a beekeeper with five colonies in the spring and exactly how you would run this program. When I read this, I'm like, you know, I don't, I don't really need to, to try to explain um, what I'm doing in my yard because pretty much that's what it is. It's uh, pretty much what she's talking about. I've uh, managed to stay fully chemical free since 2010. Um, and how I do that at Five Apple Farm um, is if I see any sign of disease, well, let me tell you kind of how I've done it in the past and actually some changes that I am making in the process of making. In the past, what I've done is if I see, I, I check my hives regularly, I look very carefully at the brood nest. If I see any sign of disease, basically I mark that hive and I instantly requeen it. It's easy for me to requeen because I'm breeding queens in the, and so I have all, hopefully always have little nukes just sitting by waiting for their chance to shine. And so when I have a hive, 
at the first sign I want to requeen. Now that's really important because if you let that hive get sick, I mean, to where they literally look like crap, then you can put the best queen on earth in there and she's not going to be able, you know, to pull it out from that undertow. And so that is why you catch it at the first sign. If, if, it, if for whatever reason, it, the disease, the brood actually is showing signs of disease, then obviously first I test for Amer American fowl brood. And that's the test where you just pick up a stick off the ground and any of the dead brood, you, you basically, you know, kind of mush the stick in there and then you pull it back and see if it ropes. And um, that's the kind of field test, a real basic field test for American fowl brood. You can look that up online. You want to make sure whenever you see disease that it is not American fowl brood. After that, um, you can kind of relax a little because um, then you're dealing with, you know, some of the not as bad uh, diseases. But basically, when I see those diseased, I try to get rid of those diseased frames because that new nuke that I'm going to combine with that hive, I want her to have a chance at, at, at pulling that hive, um, you know, out of its death spiral. And so part of that is by getting on it quick and also uh, pulling out as many frames of, you know, if, if I have a bad looking brood frame, then I shake the bees off and I throw that frame away. Um, because I do not want that frame in the hive anymore. I want to have, I want that queen to really have a chance to show herself. And in one of Dr. Milbush's presentations, she put it into words, and I had never really um, put it into words before until I saw hers. And that was that, you know, I could have a queen that is literally two or three times better than any queen I have ever had. And if I put her, if I combine her little nuke into a really diseased hive, she's still not going to be able to pull it out of that death spiral. And so I'm going to lose the best queen I had ever bred at Five Apple Farm. I won't know that, of course, but um, so, so basically that's why I call those brood frames. I try to, first of all, I try to catch it before they ever start looking sick. Then I call the brood frames um, and, and requeen. I would totally be glad to use, even though I have not had to yet, the organic acids, the formic, um, the oxalic, and thymol. If I if I had a hive that had gotten so far gone um, that it did not look like you know they were going to be okay even with a new queen, then I would want to clean that hive up. Like I said, I haven't had that happen yet, um, but I would gladly use those treatments because they're or they are literally some of them are you know you can be organic certified and use them and to me it would be silly to lose that colony lose that population that I can put my new queen on test her out maybe have a beautiful thriving hive and maybe have the best queen that I ever have but if I if I just let those bees die then that's such a waste and that is what drives me personally crazy about the some of the treatment-free live, you know, let them die philosophy is, it is so wasteful. And that is just not uh, something that's not something I can stomach. And as she points out in her article, um, if you really are looking at your bees regularly, you know, when they're sick, it is painful to see and you don't want to do that. Um, or at least I don't want to do that. I, I, you know, when I, if I open a hive and they have that just sickly look to them, um, I just don't feel okay until I get them uh, healthy and, and thriving again.
So I'll wrap this part of this topic up about now. Um, I would, I think I will do a, a part two. Um, so, but I'll leave that there for now. And um, I wanted to tell you some things that were going on in my bee yard. I was sort of laughing at myself this morning because I think if I had a regular segment, a regular portion of this podcast, it should be titled Mistakes I Made This Week <laughs> with Lee. <laughs> um, because I want to tell you about a mistake I made this week. And part of this is in the keeping it real portion, because if you're a new beekeeper, sometimes you can really be hard on yourself and beat yourself up. Uh, actually, if you're new or intermediate beekeeper, about things you did wrong. You know, it's like, I knew better than that. Man, why'd I do that thing? But that is simply part of practicing your art. You know, if you were an athlete, you would mess up on a thing, um, you know, a thousand times. And that way, then you can get it right the next time. Um, and beekeeping is so much like that. So this week, my mistake of the week was, I think I mentioned that I got some queens from a breeder that I was very interested in, um, and they were virgin queens. And I had never gotten virgin queens from a different breeder, and you, you introduce them a little bit different than a caged mated queen. It's sort of more high risk because the virgin queen, they don't have the pheromones, and so your bees are even less likely to recognize them as royalty, and they are even more likely to kill them. And then also there is the risk factor of with a virgin queen, you know, she has to go out, fly around, not get eaten by a bird, not get knocked down by a rainstorm, and mate with a bunch of drones, and then somehow get back to the hive and start laying. And so those are a lot of ifs. But um, anyway, I got five virgin queens, and um, I put them in little... Um, little nukes. I call them mating nukes, but they're just regular size nuke boxes. Some of them are three frame, some of them are four frame, and some are five frame, and from my various and random equipment. But I was so focused on, um, I'd pulled frames from other hives. I was so focused, you know, when the queens arrived, first of all, they were days late because the UPS Overnight Express ended up taking four days to get here. And um, I was amazed that they were alive, but the queen breeder had packed them really well. Um, and so I, I made up the little um, mating nukes. I'd made them up days before. And so now I had to go back through them and make sure that, to, that I had found every single queen cell they had started and knock them down. Because if there was a single queen cell left in there, then they would prefer her, you know, part of their own bloodline, to this new and strange and not even fully baked queen. And... Um, so I was so focused on doing that and getting the right amount of population and you know I was doing these little mating nukes from the apiary here even though I put them slightly different part of the farm it's still you know within the flight zone so I knew I'd lose the forager bees so I was trying to get the population right I was really focused I'm out there at night you know doing this after work and then the queens don't come, and then, then they finally come, and they happen to be alive. So then I had to go back out and um, go through for queen cells again, again, in the dark, at night. <laughs> Which is something that someone told me about. Anytime you start messing with queens and queen breeding, you're going to be opening bees at all kinds of times that you shouldn't open bees. And that is so true. Um, so anyway, I did all that. I installed the queens and then with virgin queens, you basically do not open the hive for the next two weeks because any disturbance could stir up the bees and that increases the chances that they will um, decide they don't like her and offer. And so 
I didn't mess with the bees. Well, today was the two-week mark, and I have just been counting the hours till I could go out there and see if any of those virgin queens were successful. And a last night was when I realized, oh my gosh, in my eagerness to do virgin queens just right, I broke one of the basic rules of beekeeping, which is not to leave empty space. And so I had meant to go back and put extra frames. So I had in each one of the little mating nukes, I'd put like three frames of bees. And I had meant to go back and fill up, you know, either the fourth frame or the fourth and the fifth frame. And I forgot. And so, and they were being fed, of course, because that helps with queen acceptance. So I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to open up those nukes and they are going to, you know, have drawn comb from the lid of every nuke and I'm going to, you know, it's probably going to have eggs in it if I'm lucky and then I'm going to have to, you know, wire it into frames and blah, blah, blah. So I was really, um, <laughs> and then of course today it was pouring rain on and off. So in between the deluge, I got run out and checked these little nukes and I'm thrilled to report that four of five of the Virgin Queens were successful and are laying eggs. Only one of them had really gone crazy and drawn comb from the lid and it wasn't enough that I had to wire it back into anything. So that was my um, both my mistake and I got lucky that it didn't go completely wrong like it could have been of the week. All right, I hope you have a very nice day. I wanted to get this out there in case any of you are listening, driving to work on Monday morning, because um, it's been such an enjoyable thing to hear from you, mostly on the Facebook page, which is Five Apple Farm bees honey and more on Facebook and then some of you have emailed me Um, but it's so fun to hear about what you're doing with your bees and what you're doing in your woodworking workshop and when you listen to the podcast some people are listening while they're driving to work and some are uh, listening in their garage while they're working on projects and anyway all that is just great fun to hear and I thank every one of you for listening this is this has been really enjoyable to um, meet the people who have made contact so have a great day Um, I'll come back with part two at at some point and um, I also have an article picked out to do the next radio reader uh, be reader for you I want to read you Tom Seeley's article on what he calls Darwinian beekeeping which is to me very exciting and the subject of his upcoming book so with that I'm signing off it's a Sunday night and have a good one talk to you soon